Coming up on the Mission Readiness Podcast. I would argue that what the United States should be most worried about right now is not feeling a team that is big enough and capable enough for the future. Mission Readiness is the organization of retired admirals and generals working to prepare America's youth for success. Join us as we talk with respected leaders about the challenges facing our next generation. And now, retired U.S. Army Brigadier General Rich Gross and Mission Readiness National Director Ben Goodman. Welcome to the Mission Readiness Podcast. I'm Rich Gross, your host. With me, as always, the National Director of Mission Readiness, Ben Goodman. Ben, how are you? I'm great, General Gross. How are you? I'm doing really, really well. I'm actually very excited about this podcast. I think this is the first time that we've had one of my former bosses on the show, General Stan McChrystal. Really? You worked for General McChrystal? I actually worked for him twice. Uh, had an opportunity to work for him for three years uh, at JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command at Fort Bragg and Pope Air Force Base in North Carolina. And then he tagged me to go to Afghanistan with him for a year when he commanded the uh, NATO forces there as well as the U.S. forces. So I've, I've had two opportunities to serve with him and work for him. He, he's an amazing man, uh, a great leader. He's got a lot of innovative ideas on leadership, and I'm just really excited that we're going to get a chance to talk to him today. Well, I'm thrilled to have General Stan McChrystal on the Mission Readiness Podcast. He is not only an extraordinarily distinguished American and leader, but he's a longtime friend, a mentor, and I've had the privilege of working with him uh, and for him on a number of occasions. Uh, Sir, you've been the Joint Special Operations Commander. You've been the International Security Assistance Force Commander and the Commander of all U.S. and NATO forces in Afghanistan. Just an extraordinary military career. But I, I want to find out from you. First of all, welcome. I want to find out from you what you've been doing since. Yeah, Rich, thanks. And of course, I'd go right back to you. As, as you mentioned, you and I have worked together multiple times for a long time and both times at war, both times when it, it really mattered. So my thanks to you. So what I've been doing since I retired, which is 10 years now, and uh I left the service not having a clue what I wanted to do. I left sort of suddenly and you, you end up in shock. But I made some decisions that turned out to be great. I'm not going to claim that they were well thought out. One, with a friend of mine, I started a company, McChrystal Group, which is now 10 years old. And it's become sort of the love of my life. I, I work with people, many of whom you know, Rich, that I admire and I care about. And we do important work and it gives me something to feel like I'm a part of. And so that's important to me. I've uh, been able to be a part of writing three books, and I've just uh, finished the manuscript for a fourth book. And that makes you think. It forces you to study something and, and broaden the way you look at things. And so the writing process for me has been educational. I hope it helps other people, but it, it really, on an inward uh, basis, has done that for me. I have been able to do a lot of public speaking, which I didn't expect I'd do. You know, you talk to troops a lot in the military, so you get used to that. But public speaking for me, I initially did it because they pay you to do it. But then I found out that interacting with all kinds of different groups was really rewarding and informative. 
you know, I went out all across the country. I met with small companies, big companies, associations, and you find all these people in a part of American society that you didn't remember existed. And they're smart and they're focused and they've worked hard and they do really cool stuff. And you suddenly start to get a much more diverse view of what America is than you do when you're just in uniform and you're focused on your, your own personal career. And then the last part is I've been able to be on some boards of directors, uh, JetBlue Airlines, Navistar, and things like that. And for someone who doesn't have a business background, that's a great way to sort of get business 101, 201, 301, 401, sometimes jam down your throat suddenly. But also a reminder that it takes leadership in firms. I was on the board of Deutsche Bank USA for two years, and, and I am not a banker. But they were very direct with me. And they said, we need some non-banking experience here for someone to ask stupid questions. And I specialize in that. So I've had a, I've just had 10 great years to include three granddaughters being born and living next door to me. So it's been as good as it could get. Yeah, you have had a busy time. I mean, I think you're busier now than you were in the military. And one of the things that that I got an opportunity to do with you was go up to Yale. Now you're you're you've been associated with them for a while. Tell us a little bit about some of the cool things you do with both uh, Yale undergrad and I think some of the uh, some of the graduate schools as well. Yeah, it's been terrific. I got invited to go teach at Yale right after I retired. I'd never even been to New Haven. So I went up there sight unseen, accepted the, uh, the job and began teaching leadership. So I've taught leadership now for 10 years and I'm getting ready to, to teach the course again. I'll teach it in the spring this year. And so I teach 20 students each semester and it's a seminar that is taken from across the school. We typically have about 14 graduate students and six undergraduates. We make sure that it is diverse in background. There's always one or two veterans. There's international students. I've had people from the Divinity School, the Forestry School, the Medical School, the Law School. And you put them in this team for a semester together as a seminar. And we go to Gettysburg. We spend two days not studying tactics, but looking at leadership. And we form a tight bond across the team. And so it's a chance to look at leadership. And a lot of these young people have never studied leadership directly before. They've, it's been a bank shot to other things they study, but it's been remarkably well-received. And then I've been able to do some other things up at Yale as well. I've been able to guest teach in a number of courses, been kindly invited. And then for nine years, I've been working with a football team. And so Coach Reno uh, and I had become very close. I started the first year he was there. I put at least one or two football players in the seminar every year because it's good for the seminar and it's good for the team. We've developed a close friendship. I take the rising seniors of the football team to Gettysburg every spring to prep for the next year. And they have this incredible evening where they commit to each other for the following year. And we you know, Coach Reno's had some very good seasons, which he gives me some credit for. I think that's misplaced, but I'm happy to, to accept. And then finally, um, I'm not stupid. We've hired a number of Yale graduates, former students into my company, and they have to a person performed brilliantly. So it's been uh, just another great experience. 
Yeah, I had a, a, the privilege of going up there with you one time to do a National Security Council exercise, which was just amazing. And I was I was really impressed by the talent of the, of the young students and how quickly they took to it. Well, you mentioned the coach. He was a guest recently, I think, on your podcast, which you've just started recently. I think you and Chris Fussell have uh, started this podcast from a crystal group. Tell us a little bit about that, uh, why you started it, and what you're doing with the podcast. Sure. Thanks for asking. We we were nine and a half years <clears throat> into McChrystal Group when COVID-19 hit. And what happened is we, we stepped back and said, well, what could we contribute in this situation? Because a lot of the DNA of McChrystal Groups comes from the time we were in Joint Special Operations Command together, Rich, and we had to change the organization in the middle of a fight from something that was very comfortable and very successful, but no longer purpose-built for what we had to do. So we said, well, maybe we could offer some of those lessons to other organizations. So we started going out, we wrote some articles, and then we started the idea of a podcast, and we call it No Turning Back. And the reason is we believe that there are times when change forces you to make big decisions, and there's no turning back, and you can't be frightened you have to be accepting of the new reality, but then you have to be very flexible to figure out, you know, iterate on your way what to do. It's sort of like burning your boats at the, the water's edge and marching in. And so we've brought in a number of uh, leaders of all kinds. We just did Senator Joe Manchin. We did Tony Reno of the Yale football team. We've done Doug McMillan of uh, Walmart, the CEO of Walmart, Alex Gorski of Johnson & Johnson. We've had just this fascinating range of people from tech companies to government to football. And the common DNA is that at the end of the day, leadership matters. Now we all say, okay, yeah, I, I knew that. Okay. <laughs> the fact that we know how to be healthy, eat right, exercise, work out, get enough sleep, doesn't mean we all necessarily do it every day. And so this leadership in a moment like COVID, when everything has been sort of thrown into tumult, particularly down for our team members, the young people who are sitting at their kitchen table trying to work from home in pajama bottoms, but with kids around them, uh, leadership has become maybe more important than ever. And so the idea of no turning back is to help everybody get through this uh, as a group. Well, you, you spoke about pivoting during COVID. Uh, what other ways has the McChrystal Group pivoted during this time? Because obviously leadership, I've seen your, your organization, I've seen your style, tends to be a hands-on, face-to-face, very you know, personal experience as well as professional. That's hard to do in a time of COVID. How, is, how have you and the team pivoted? Yeah, it's great. And, and you and I remember, uh, Rich, we pivoted to a virtual work environment in many ways in JSOC because we had to. JSOC had grown up as a secret organization that would go to a single base and plan and prepare and rehearse and then go out and do an operation and then come back and sort of all in the same room. We used to say coffee breath close and, and solve the problems. And then we were spread across 27 different countries simultaneously, 76 different bases we had reps at. And yet we had to synchronize that team every 24 hours. And you say, well, how in God's name do you do that? And the only way we were able to do it was the fact that information technology had fortunately just about matured at that point. 
So we spent a ton of money on bandwidth. We put infrastructure and we adopted video teleconferencing in a sec- over a secure mode. So we put this entire command on video ca- teleconference every day. And most of us probably did six or seven a day as you, as you connected. But the idea was, it wasn't like being in a room, but it was as close as you could get. And you, you learned to project through the camera and you learned how to, to, uh, to fill out the gaps in, uh, in that so that you create. So McChrystal Group had already been pretty good at that because we're, as a consulting company, we're spread across the country in projects. We connect. But now what we did is we sped up our speed. So we do it every day. Everybody in McChrystal Group gets on a video teleconference with everybody else every single day. Not only takes about a half an hour, but it's like going in the huddle with the quarterback. And you suddenly, you're reminded what the score is, you're reminded what's happening. We call the play and we, we say, I've learned this, I've learned this, what can I, can I do better? And we go from there, which has allowed us to help some other companies do that. Because some other companies have just suddenly found themselves forced to be distributed, not by choice. They're, they're forced to under some challenging circumstances. Uh, I'd like, if you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit about our experience in Boston because- Please do. We had not really done government work in the first nine years of a crystal group. We, we had just chosen not to It'd go to commercial companies and to be honest, I didn't want to be a retired military guy going selling stuff to the military, so we just didn't. But then we got a call from the, the city government of Boston, and they asked if the mayor could talk to me. And so we set up a call, and the mayor had been uh, directed by one of his people to a book that we'd written, Team of Teams, and some ideas we were pushing. And the mayor said, I think you could help us. And one of turns out one of his senior leaders in the government of Boston, Brian Golden, is a military reservist. He was familiar with what we had done, both in the military and since then. He had connected us with the mayor and said that COVID is about to hit Boston like an invasion. It was already rocking New York City hard, but Boston had not yet been truly assaulted by COVID. And the mayor said, I think we do things pretty well, but I don't think we're prepared for this. Can you help us? So we sent a small team up there on the ground, four people, and then we connected the rest of McChrystal Group to them so that the entire effectiveness of McChrystal Group was funneled through these four on the ground uh, people. Two of them were veterans. Um, And what they did was they helped Boston react to a new environment because you think about it, Boston has to react to both running the government on a daily basis, but dealing with this, you know, once in a century pandemic, but suddenly they have to do all this distributed, meaning they can't get in one room, they can't be shoulder to shoulder, they can't sort it out, they can't look people in the eye. They're doing it from kitchens and living rooms and bedrooms and and all these people, many of whom didn't know each other because a lot of the stakeholders weren't in the inner circle of Boston government. They were on the edges, they were food suppliers, they were hospital people. You have to bring all this together. You've got to make them a team. You've got to function to get things done. And you've got to deal with this uh, constant arising of new challenges. 
One night in the middle of the night, they found out that one of the, the food warehouses of a contractor that supported food for the needy had a rat infestation. So in the middle of the night, they had to fix it. They had to stop using that one. They had to pivot. They had to get new contractors. And in morning, by morning, when they're distributing food, it's absolutely transparent to the citizens who need that food. But all of this is done by a team that is operating dispersed and, and created it. It was a pretty extraordinary uh, performance on the part of Mayor Marty Walsh and his team. The ability to adapt, the willingness to adapt. And of course, we were fortunate to be a part of that. Now, it sounds very familiar, frankly. I mean, it, it, it uh, sounds a lot like your, your team of team books and, and what we saw as, as you led our team through, frankly, reinventing the counterterrorism fight, uh, which, which was amazing. You, you mentioned COVID, obviously, and, and your help there with, with the uh, folks up in Boston. But I, I also understand you've done a couple of other projects on COVID uh, one with the uh, the nonprofit business executives for national security, who's who's led by a, a mutual friend of ours, uh, uh, General Votel, and then also you've done some work with the Council on Foreign Relations. I'd, I'd love to hear about both of those projects and and what your what what you've done to help us get through this COVID uh, pandemic. Well, it it is an international challenge. If there's ever something that we ought to all be united on, it's something that threatens all of us. And the people we care about, not just in our town or our county or our state or our country, but in our world. And the other thing about COVID is, unless you solve it everywhere, you never really solve it anywhere. Because as you and I saw years ago, working against polio in Afghanistan and Pakistan, a little bit of polio is a threat to come back everywhere. And so you've got you've to be united and connected and collaborative in solving it. So I've been lucky enough to be really at the nexus of several of these efforts that you mentioned. The first is we worked with the city of Boston, the state of Virginia, the state of Connecticut, state of Missouri, now the state of Nebraska. And in every case, it's a slightly different version of helping them pull their team together to collaborate better. Because typically what we find is we actually have the resources we have the brains, we have the energy, we have everything we need if we connect it, if we don't try to fight 50 separate fights, 50 state fights against COVID-19. I was uh, invited and, and honored to be a part of two studies on this. As you mentioned, the Business Executives for National Security, which a good friend of both of ours, retired General Joe Votel, is the CEO of, he put together a commission to study the problem. And he invited this star-studded list of current and former CEOs and scientists and physicians and uh, lawmakers from across active and, and former government to study the problem. And then he has a core staff that is helping do a lot of the hard work. And we had a series of meetings and we've come out with some really good insights on things that we can do to make America more resilient for the next time. Some of them are pretty obvious uh, in terms of connecting elements and establishing clear lines of responsibility. Some like building digital connections that don't exist now are, were less obvious to me, but are very, very powerful. And hearing uh, tech CEOs talk about how we could leverage different things to do that has been great. So that's been really instructional for me. And then the other is 
I am a member of a Council on Farm Relations Task Force. And this one is more focused on COVID-19 itself. And it says, what could we have done better in the past in preparation for this? How could we have been better prepared? And how should that affect what we do for the next one? So the two studies clearly overlap by quite a bit. And in both cases, I would argue we essentially concluded the same thing. We concluded that in reality, we know a lot about pandemics. There's a lot of history. There's a lot of scientific study. We know what to do about them. We also know that they are coming. You cannot predict pandemics from emerging, nature of viruses and mutations as such. They will always come at you like waves on the shore. So you don't pretend that a hurricane won't come during hurricane season. You just get ready for it. So that's the first thing we could. The second is we actually developed pretty credible plans to deal with pandemics. And those plans put together different national agencies, international, the World Health Organization and whatnot. They're not perfect, but they're not bad. The problem was we didn't resource those plans and then in the moment, we didn't execute them. And we didn't execute them for lots of reasons. Some of them were personality issues. Some of them were political issues. Some of them were just mistakes. But the reality is we don't have to go back and say we didn't understand the problem or we, we weren't smart enough to develop solutions. It's about the discipline to apply the resources in preparation and actually execute in the moment. And it gets back to my analogy of we all know how to be in better health. The question is, are we willing to give up smoking? Are we willing to, to do those things? And in many cases, we've not been. You know, as, you were, as, as you've been talking about working with diverse organizations, a bank, tech companies, uh, a city government, a state government, it, it reminded me of, of some of the great things that you did with the International Committee of the Red Cross, a, a, an organization that traditionally the military, particularly the special operations community, had tended to keep at arm's length, had tended to, to provide as little information as possible, just just because of concerns over classification and, and OPSEC and operational security and things like that. But you embraced the ICRC the, uh, in, in uh, Kabul when, when you were the commander of ISAF and U.S. Forces Afghanistan and really turned that relationship around. I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, Rich, and, and I did it as a commander simply by telling you to fix it. And... Uh, so I give my credit, myself credit for that much of it, but, but you're going to get all the rest of this. But it's a really interesting story, and it's important. If you go back to Joint Special Operations Command that you and I grew up in, we were about going and getting the bad guys. And so it was about doing raids. And in Iraq, we hit a period where we were doing 300 raids a month, and we did that for years. It was this extraordinary machine. In Afghanistan, we never hit that pace because the problem wasn't the same, but we would do raids to go after an enemy leader who had been identified somewhere. But I would argue that we were pretty tone deaf to this, the real situation in Afghanistan. The Afghans are very private people in many ways, and, and most of their homes have a set of dwellings and they are surrounded by a mud wall. And that mud wall is not for defense, it's for privacy. 
they have their family in there and they only invite people in when they want to. And they are very private about what happens here, particularly with the female part of the family. And they defend those homes. They, they consider it uh, a, a, a part of their honor to defend their homes, as we would. We would do raids. We would get information that a Taliban leader was in a home, and we would surround that at night. And with no warning, we would burst open the door. We'd blow it open or we'd force it open, and we'd go inside. And someone would rush out with an AK-47 and shoot at us, and, and we would return fire and often kill a person and go in. And what we would find too often is that we had killed someone in the family who was defending hearth and home. Now, there may have been the Taliban leader in there, but if you go further into Afghan culture, you find that it is against Pashtun culture to refuse anyone hospitality. So even if someone you don't like or agree with you comes to your home and says, I want to stay here for the night, you have to let them do that. It's hospitality. And then you have to defend them. And we would sometimes be ignorant or ignore that part of the culture. And we would go in and we would do an operation and with a Maybe we'd get the bad guy, but the outcome was still tragic because we were losing support of the Afghan people. For many years, the International Committee of the Red Cross had been criticizing us for this. They'd said, we do understand the balance between having to do the security operations you do. However, the operations you do are often killing civilians who don't need to die, some of whom are innocent, and they are producing negative effects in the country that are broader than, than your mission. And I mean, to be honest, we at times would sort of cover our ears and, and lower our heads and say, our mission is so important and we're the good guys and we're going to do this and we, we pull on. Sometimes they could be very vexing. They could be irritating people. And, and, but, but there was a lot about what they said that was right. But the, the problem was they weren't listening to us and we weren't listening to them. We'd gotten to the point where we're saying we got our mission, they don't get it, and they'd say we have a, a larger view and those guys don't get it. When I took command of uh, ISAF, I was now in command of all forces in Afghanistan and I invited you over for yet another round uh, to deploy as and be our lawyer. And I asked you at that point, I said, this this opposition is just countered to our interests and theirs. Fix it. And I remember, well, you probably ought to tell this because you reached out to him. Describe it, Rich. Uh, I do remember it quite well. You, I reached out. You, you gave me a mandate. You said, fix this relationship. It's important. And so I reached out to Reto Stocker, who was the head of the ICRC delegation there in Afghanistan. And I said, General McChrystal wants to meet you. And a lot of silence on the other end. And, and, and they said, are you sure? And I said, yes. And we brought Reto over for tea. And, and you and I and he uh, sat on the back porch uh, of the headquarters there, just the three of us, had a very candid conversation. And you made it clear to him that you were open, that he could come over anytime, that he was always welcome at the headquarters, that any information he needed, I was to get to him. And then you pointed to me and said, 
You got that right. <laughs> I said, yes, yes, sir, I do. And so you you created an atmosphere there that said, these are partners now. These We are going to work with them. We are going to provide them information. And we're going to be as open and transparent as we can be, you know, under the, the dictates of classification and so forth. And we established a relationship there that I think was groundbreaking for the ICRC. And that, what I saw that it spread when when you set that tone at the headquarters, it spread to other units, and they realized that this was the way we were going to deal with the ICRC. It was it was it was absolutely a, a, a groundswell change, and really enhanced our relationship with them. It, it was a good year that we had there with them, and they became very useful in providing us information and making us better. And I think we fulfilled what we needed to do to, to keep that relationship strong. So it was, a, it was a good thing you did, sir. Well, no, I mean, really, Rich, the, the credit to you. But it's if we try to extrapolate that to things now, I did the podcast with Senator Joe Manchin the other day. One of the things he talked about was he's almost in mourning at the loss of the times when Democratic and Republican leaders would get together and have dinner or drinks and they would interact, even if they disagreed on many policy issues. The point he made is, even if people are very far apart, if you get together and you start something you agree on, hey, the weather's good today. I mean, okay, that's a start. Once you stop demonizing them and start listening a bit, it's amazing how the change occurs. And so I think that what you did there is you pull two pretty oppositional organizations into a point where we realize, one, we didn't dislike them as people. And second, we both would benefit from being more open-minded about it. And I would argue that that applies to almost everything I can think about in society today that isn't going as well as we'd like it to. No, absolutely true. And we ended up having them over once a week and we'd sit down at whether they had anything on the agenda or we did. We'd, I'd sit with them and we'd talk and have coffee and, and it really made for a, a good relationship with them. Uh, and it's, it's fun to think back on those times. Well, let's turn now, if, if you don't mind, sir, to the, the idea about young people wanting to join the military. And obviously that's something we care about very much at Mission Readiness. You've been a big supporter of mission readiness for a long time. And, and as you know, uh, from our past reports and the report we just released, it's getting harder and harder for young people to have the option to join the military because of childhood obesity or malnutrition issues or a lack of physical fitness, a lack of education, other issues uh, with criminal records and so forth. And so I want to I want to talk about that a little bit. The first thing I would ask you, you're obviously you've always been a very physically fit person. You're known for that. Uh, and sometimes you'll hear people say, well, why, why do military members need to be so fit these days anyway? I mean, they you know, we need hackers. We need uh, I.T. specialists. We need people who can read a radar. We don't necessarily need somebody who's physically fit. How would you respond to that? Yeah, I, I probably would. Uh, widen the term physically fit to healthy. And so you don't need everybody that can bench press a tremendous amount of weight. I can't or run a long way. But the reality is if people are healthy, they function better. They think better. They interact better. They are sick less. And so 
I, th- I personally think exercise is very important. One, because I think it keeps you more alert. It does lots of things, but it also keeps you healthier. I'm 66 now and I work out every single day and I'm convinced that I do better because I do that. Um, and so now if we think about taking that to a national level, only 29% of young people are qualified to enlist in the service. And you go, now, wait a minute. What about the other 71%? As you mentioned, obesity, legal problems, other education shortcomings, things like that. And you say, well, wow. Well, that's the same 29% that top corporations are competing for, schools are, things like this. So now we've got 29% that we expect to do an awful lot because the others aren't going to get the same opportunities to learn and, and to contribute to society that they probably could if they were maximized. And you say, well, that's tough, but okay. No, it's bigger than that. If we go back to December 8th, 1941, the biggest recruiting day in American history, we started to fill the U.S. military with 12 million people in uniform, and then millions more had to backfill them in in uh, critical jobs in the economy, things like that. Suddenly, when you're in competition, the size of your team matters. It's not just LeBron James that matters. You suddenly have to have a whole bunch of good ballplayers, good people who can compete. I would argue that what the United States should be most worried about right now is not feeling a team that is big enough and capable enough for the future. You know, we're not in a Cold War yet, but we are in something that is so competitive, it's an awful lot like that. We are competitive with other nations, particularly China, in a different way with Russia, but we're in competition in the world for the well-being of Americans. And I'm not arguing America first, I'm arguing America still has got to be very, very competitive educationally health-wise, et cetera. So if we're going to do that, we better get as many of our young people healthy, educated, focused as possible. A lot more than we're doing right now. And it's not to be nice to them. This is not a moral thing. This is not a be nice to people who don't have a good opportunity. It's a, we need the talent in the game. And so It goes back to educational opportunities at a young age. It goes back to a safe environment, what to live. And even more fundamentally, it goes back to nutrition. People have got to have access to enough good food and the leadership to guide them to it so that they are fundamentally healthy. If not, we lose them. And then suddenly we have someone who's not healthy enough to contribute. And then what do we do? We we, we have a hole in the ranks and we have somebody that's going to need people to take care of them and not vice versa. No, absolutely true. And as you know, we released a report last week titled Breaking Point, Child Malnutrition Imperils America's National Security that discusses how strengthening and modernizing school meal programs is so critical to our future national security. What solutions do you think the federal government ought to consider to address these issues? Yeah, and this is where our federal system gets a little bit in tension. And I'm not going to take that on. I'm going to describe what I think the outcome should be. And then we could argue about who does it. 
The first thing is, I think, is every child that goes to school needs to have food before they go to school so that you're awake and you're focused. If they don't have it at home, you've got to give it to them at school. And that ought to be free. The same as every child ought to get lunch. And there should be no stigma. You shouldn't have, here's the line for the kids who don't have the money, because that's horrifyingly embarrassing. So school lunches ought to be free. Just everybody goes to school ought to get free breakfast and free lunch just because. And we just wrap that into the cost of educating because that is part of educating. You know, it's like in the military, you, you send people to, to war, you feed them because you need them to be able to do what you want. So I would take this as a, uh, an absolute given or mandate. And, and I would do the same in private schools. I would make it paid for by the government so that there's no stigma and there's no difference at all. And I also would prefer not to have one school district where people are eating much better than in another school district because it's uh, a wealthier zip code. I don't think that's the place to differentiate. If you want to differentiate later what, you know, country club they can join, that's their business. But when people are young, the opportunities ought to be absolute and, and as equal and as complete as possible. Oh, and that makes that makes great sense, sir. Thank you. You know, and I think you've got a stake in this personally now with, as you mentioned earlier, three young uh, granddaughters, I think you said. What are you all doing to teach them nutrition, health, fitness, and so forth? I know you and Annie are, are, are very, very personally healthy and fit. So what, what are you doing to teach grandchildren that? Yeah, I'd love to see you doing great. I keep a big box of lollipops in the house. And so every day they come over, the two oldest, one's six, one's three and a half, one's 10 months. The two older ones know where they are and they get them. One day, the middle one, Elsie, we, we, she was on our, the bed in our room watching TV. And I was in the office here right down the hall working, came back in and she had eaten 13 lollipops and she had thrown the stick in the paper on the floor with each one. And of course we were, ah, and she goes, I ate a lot of lollipops. Well, we, we're working to constrain that. But what we try to do, my son's a big workout fanatic. You know, Annie and I are, and my daughter-in-law's as well. So we try to, to model the behaviors as much as we can. Uh, we try to make sure that they see what we're eating. There, there's a rhythm to it. It's not perfect. I am not going to claim that at all. But I think the best thing you can do for kids is give them the opportunity and the example. And hopefully that pulls them in the right direction. No, I think that's good advice. You've mentioned one of my favorite things you say about leadership uh, that I learned from you, and I've heard you say in posts a number of times, is you compare a leader to a gardener. And I think, I think most people at first glance would say, well, a gardener? Explain that and talk a little bit about that concept of leadership. Yeah, and it's funny. It came to me when I was writing Team of Teams with the team. And my mother had had a garden when I was, you know, like 12. And it was a big garden. She was like industrial size. And I was just unpaid, unskilled labor. So I was hauling manure and stuff like that. But she was producing a lot of stuff. And, and I was really impressed by how much she could produce in terms of vegetables and things like that, no flowers. But I was also struck by what was actually happening there. 
she was enabling them. And if you think back to our experience in Joint Special Operations Command, when I took over, the history of the organization had been the commanding general approved every operation because that was the nature. Each one was so important. But we had to do more. It had to be faster. You had to push that decision-making down. You had to unlock the skills in the organization so that they were more than just executing. They were deciding so we could be much better than we were. And to a degree, I lost a lot of the direct control over JSOC that I might have had when I first started. And that is, I've got my hands on the levers all the time. And instead, I was a step back and I was orchestrating this environment. And it struck me that that was an awful lot like being a gardener. Because what a gardener really does is prepares the ground, plants, waters, weeds, feeds at the appropriate time, harvests. While the plants do that, which only plants can do, they grow and they grow simultaneously. So suddenly you have the ability to scale and speed that you can't do if there's one person responsible for each thing. And, and yet this gardener's an enabler in a fascinating way because the gardener creates this opportunity and protects it and makes it easier. And when I think of the best leadership experiences I've been a part of, that's what was happening. At the end of the day, the teammates were doing it. You know, when I was the leader, I was one step back enabling them to do it, maybe given a little bit of direction to pretend I was in charge. But the reality was, you know, giving them the opportunity. And I think we, in a fast-paced, complex environment, that's the only thing that is responsive enough. I don't think any single person is bright enough or energetic enough to, to be the chess master that moves every piece on the, on the table. Well, and I, I saw you do that with the example we talked about a little earlier, the ICRC. You you turned that over to me and gave me some general guidance, and no pun intended, and then let me and my team cultivate and, and grow that relationship. And, and, it, and it really was uh, neat to, to have that opportunity. Well, the last question we normally ask our guests is, what books are you reading or what would you recommend? I will do that. But before that, you, you mentioned a book. You mentioned your, your fourth book. You've been working on the manuscript. Tell us about that book. What can we look forward to? I assume it's on leadership. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Yeah, Rich, thanks for asking. It is, uh, it's a book on risk and risk, really where risk overlaps with leadership because there's been a lot of study on risk, scientific study and mathematical study. But my experience in life was we never really used any of that. We dealt with risks sort of by intuition and interaction and habit. And I think I'm probably average on that. I think most of us do that. So what we, what we came upon was every organization, an individual actually, has what I would call a risk immune system. It's very similar to the human immune system. And the human immune system detects threats, assesses them, responds to them, and then learns. And that's the, the brilliance of the, the human immune system. Well, if we have a functioning risk immune system in an organization, what we really do is we have much more power to respond to risk than we think. We don't have to sit there cowering in the corner waiting to see if a pandemic's going to come or a meteor's going to fall or the price of this is going to rise or the competitor's going to do stuff. We can improve a number of factors, communication, our diversity, 
how we deal with bias, our ability to act, overcome inertia, uh, the narrative we use inside and outside our organization, the structure we use. And, and, and through strengthening those factors, you're basically strengthening your risk immune system. And then instead of being scared and trying to dodge each risk because you really can't, you just say, sir, bring it on. I am stronger, better. It's, it's very similar to, to being healthier. You know, if you are physically healthy and you're well-educated and you are spiritually grounded in some way, you're a lot more resilient. Things don't upend you the same. And so that's what we study. And it's been uh, a fascinating uh, journey. That sounds timely. Uh, when can we expect that book to be published? Well, we just finished the next draft of the manuscript. I'm hoping it'll be out winter, early spring. Um, we, we take a lot of look at COVID-19 and how we've done some things well and some things not so well against that. So that's our hope. Fantastic. So the last question, what are you reading right now? And or what books would you recommend to our listeners? Yeah, I'm I am probably not surprisingly thinking a lot about the state of our nation right now. So I went back and reread a couple of books. I reread The Best and the Brightest. It was David Halberstam's book of the beginning of the Vietnam War. And he basically makes an argument that good people with good, atten- good intentions working hard can produce a bad outcome. And that's a, that's a cautionary tale. Um, and I am currently going back and reading an old book from Bruce Catton, a Civil War historian, and it's called The Coming Fury. It's the first part of a trilogy he did on the Civil War. And I'm reading about the 1850s up through the election of Abraham Lincoln. And I'm reading it because that was a time in which a nation which had been founded on a number of principles found itself starting to be cleaved into parts with a tragic outcome of a civil war. Now, I'm not saying that we're on the brink of a civil war, but many of the same tensions that are pulling us, many of the same attitudes, which I think are limiting our ability to get together and solve problems, are surfacing again. And it seems to me we're making many of the same mistakes that they made 160 years ago. And if we can learn from them, if we can consider just what it costs if you let it go completely bad, then uh, maybe that'll wake us up and say, no, we gotta, we got to seek a better way here. Two great book recommendations. Sir, thank you so much for being on the Mission Raiders podcast. It has been just a ton of fun to catch up with you and, and listen to you again. Thank you. Please be my honor, Rich, and thanks for all you've done. General Gross, I feel like I just got a graduate degree in leadership after listening to that conversation. But, you know, I've added all of General McChrystal's books to my reading list. Uh, I want to learn more. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. The the team of teams, it it lays out really kind of the the basics of his leadership style and, and how he works things. And I'd start there. Uh, if you want a history of what he's done out in the field and and who he's worked with, and my share of the task is uh, kind of autobiographical. And I'm just excited about his next book, Control, which talks about risk. He spoke about it, as you know, 
And I think this is the right time to read books about risk and, and what we can do to control those risks. So just, just an amazing man. And of course, his, his thoughts on fitness, on nutrition, and some of the great things he's done to help mission readiness. I mean, just, just a great man. And I was very, very excited to get a chance to talk to him. We're just so uh, lucky to have him on our team and, and using his voice and his platform to talk about the issues that we care about. Um, and I'll tell you, a, a lot of people around the country are really lucky to have him taking his skills and the lessons he learned uh, in uniform and helping communities and, and businesses and everybody else uh, across the country that he works with uh, learn, learn and get on the right track. Absolutely. Well, another great podcast uh, guest, and we'll have another one next week. I'd ask everybody, please, if you like the podcast, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast and join us next week on the Mission Readiness Podcast.